welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your program host, Dean Jones, and this is Season 7, Episode 20. According to the Feed America website, the number of children facing hunger in the United States rose during the pandemic from more than 10 million children in 2019 to nearly 12 million children in 2020. Families with children, especially single-parent families, are more likely to face hunger. Now, we often think of ourselves as the best country on the planet, but 12 million children, 10 million children, whatever the number, that's a lot of children that are hungry. And we often you know, wonder what we could do about it. Well, there are people that are trying to do something about it. Um, I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode to highlight the importance of the work of my guest. Today, I'm talking to Carolyn Fetterman, who is the founder of Charlie Cart Project, a national nonprofit that provides tools and curriculum for food education in schools. Carolyn has worked in food education for more than a decade, leading Alice Waters' Edible Schoolyard Project, consulting on policy and program development for the Jamie Oliver Foundation, co-founding the Berkeley Food Institute, producing UC Berkeley's Edible Education course with Michael Pollan, and teaching cooking in her children's schools. She has a cookbook out, New Favorites for New Cooks, 50 Delicious Recipes for Kids to Make. It's a really wonderful cookbook, and I really love it myself and have used it myself, even though it's, you know, focused on kids, um, you know, it's a great cookbook for anybody. And I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to Carolyn. She was a wonderful guest and she was just really fun to have on the program. Without further ado, I'm going to go to my conversation with Carolyn Betterman. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian podcast. Today, I'm talking to Carolyn Fetterman, who is the founder of the Charlie Cart Project, a national nonprofit that provides tools and curricula for food education in schools. Carolyn has worked in food education for more than a decade, leading Alice Wanner's Edible Backyard Project, consulting on policy and program development for the Jamie Oliver Foundation, co-founding the Berkeley Food Institute, producing UC Berkeley's Edible Education course with Michael Pollan, and teaching cooking in her children's schools. Carolyn lives in local Berkeley to me, California with her two teenage children, and, and is also the author of New Favorites for New Cooks, 50 Delicious Recipes for Kids to Make, a cookbook that is not just for kids, because as an adult, I love the book too, and I'll tell you, it's, it's worth a look. You're going to love it. Carolyn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dean. It's great to talk to you. Now, I want to talk about your work with um, a hero of mine, Alice Waters, at the Edible Schoolyard Project for many years. I'm a fan of her work and Chez Panis and her cookbooks. I'd love to hear you talk about, um, for our listeners who are not familiar with your work with the Edible Schoolyard Project. Sure. Um, so I um, started working with Alice in 2001. And um, it was really a funny story, if you don't mind. This is kind of a digression, but not at all. No, this is good. <laughs> I was um, I had I was on maternity leave and I had gone with a friend to make a presentation for her company. She needed somebody who could um, talk about being an events person. And she and even though I wasn't an event planner, she just asked me to come along because I didn't have anything else to do. And she wanted to make her company look a little more robust because it was new. So we we did this pitch and the person sitting across the table from us who was from Levi's, um, she called me afterward and said, you know, I know you're an event planner, which I wasn't, 
And, um, <laughs> and um, my dear friend, Alice Waters is looking, and I know you're also, you know, recently moved to Berkeley. And my dear friend, Alice Waters is looking for someone to plan this big event for her. Or just, actually she said it was a small event. She called it like a picnic under the trees or something. And, um, you know, would you go talk to her? I think you guys would really hit it off. So um, I said, sure. And I went to talk to Alice and I had been to Chez Panisse, I think one time in my life. I, I, I love food, but I, and my mother was a great cook, but I really didn't know anything about restaurants or famous chefs or anything like that. And um, I went to sit with her and we were in the downstairs of the restaurant and she had this binder and it was, um, it had those, those sheet protectors, a really slippery kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was showing me pictures of this, you know, that she had pulled from different magazines with the, to demonstrate what kind of event she wanted to have, the feel of the event. And she opened the binder to pull something out and those slippery sheets just went all over the room. And... I said, you know, why don't you just talk to me about the event and I'll, I'll take care of this, you know? So while she talked, I was picking up the papers and, um, and long story short, that was our, basically our whole relationship for 20 years, <laughs> you know, Sounds I good. was putting things together and helping her package things and put things together. And she was having this big vision and relaying this big vision and I was executing it. And yeah, and I, it didn't end up being a, a small picnic under the trees. It ended up being 750 people with all the Chez Panisse alumni. It was the 30th anniversary of the restaurant. And we did it under the Campanile at, um, at UC Berkeley. And it was really wonderful. Now the Edible Schoolyard Project, everybody that works with it is very humble, but I want to, you know, you've touched a lot of people with this. Do you ever get any feedback later on about from some of the people that were in it, some of the kids that are now older? Yeah. Um, okay. So since I'm not there anymore, I don't get, um, I don't hear as much, but when I was there, certainly there were kids who would come back and visit and say that they were studying uh, culinary arts or that they'd gone on to work in a restaurant. I've Love absolutely that. seen seeing that impact with other kids and then there's a couple of kids that that my kids grew up with who have come back to me and said because we did that you know you created a I created a little summer camp for my kids friends and or I, I did other cooking projects I had a couple of kids who were involved in testing recipes for the cookbook and they have come back to me and said that they're pursuing cooking or that they work, worked in a restaurant or that they just developed a love for cooking that they hadn't. And I had some parents also say the same. You've worked for a time with British celebrity food star, Jamie Oliver, who I just adore. Uh, can we talk about that time? Oh, sure. So that was um, in between Chez Panisse work. So I'd already left um, working for the Edible Schoolyard Project. And so that uh, he was producing um, a television show in, I think it was Huntington, um, Indiana, maybe. Um, sorry, it was so long ago that I, I remember Huntington, but I don't remember the state. And um, Virginia, Huntington. Oh, yeah, yeah. Virginia, yeah, yeah, that's right. That sounds yes, right. That's right. And so they were doing this TV show and 
um, as part of the TV show, there was a campaign around it to just, you know, create some policy initiatives. And one of the things, so there was a couple different pieces that I worked on. He had actually won a prize. He had won the TED prize. And yes. at the time, what they did is they, I don't know if they still do this, but they would gather a whole team of pro bono folks to support the execution of the, the prize winner's vision. So they had um, like Shiat Day advertising firm, you know, they had like top tier consultants come in. And so I was part of that team, which was really fun and interesting. And um and so, so what I did was I helped create um, toolkits for parents at schools who wanted to bring fresh scratch cooking to their schools to help them, you know, advocate for that to the PTA and to the administration. And then we did some policy work in LA Unified to um, remove chocolate milk from the menu. Now you were instrumental in helping to uh, fund found the Berkeley Food Institute. Can we talk about that? Oh yeah, that was um, that was a really great project. So I had been working with um, Michael Pollan and Alice Waters on this program called Edible Education 101, and that was a course. It was a survey course that we launched at UC Berkeley. Michael was the instructor and we had a series of guest lectures. And that was such an interesting course because it was also open to, pub to the public. Right. And um, so there were like 400 kids in the class and it was super popular class and Michael's such a great teacher. And then we had a slew of really fantastic speakers on all the you know very as various aspects of the food system. So um, that was really fun to work on. And at the time I was struck that food systems is so critical to our future and, and UC Berkeley's right here in the heart of um, California that, you know, why isn't there a food institute or, you know, a food, there wasn't a food major or food systems minor, nothing like that. So um, I did a little research and I figured out that um, how the institutes work at UC Berkeley. I talked to Michael Pollan about it um, and he had a um, friend who was a donor who was involved in trying to get, um, you know, a, a position for uh, educator and you know professor and food systems so we got together the three of us got together and we just hatched this plan to go fight for a for a food institute and um and so we wrote a proposal we got some different departments together and it kind of took off from there and so I was involved for the first year we had a whole um we had a symposium to kick off the launch of the food institute and um, and now it's just going strong. It's doing great. In 2015, you and the other members of the Edible Schoolyard Project founded the Charlie Cart Project. For our listeners who are not familiar with the program, can you tell us a little bit about the Charlie Cart Program and how it works? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, so I actually started it with this um, friend who's a designer um, from an organization called Celery Design. And um, so I had um, 
you know, I had just seen how impactful the Edible Schoolyard was. And also it's a pretty resource intensive program and it would be great for different organizations that could not build out a full teaching kitchen to have some way to bring, um, you know, I sort of, to put it a different way, you know, if you can't bring kids to the kitchen, you could bring the kitchen to the kids was my thought. Yeah, so, yeah. so, um, so I talked to this friend of mine, who's a designer and I said, you know, could you help me design a mobile kitchen? And he did. And, um, his name is Brian Doherty and he designed the Charlie cart and, and then, um, and we had inspiration from the check wagon from the American Prairie. Oh yeah. And, I can know, see that. That makes sense. Right. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah. You know, as a librarian, you would know about the check wagon, but a lot of people who are younger than us don't know what that is. So, um, you know, that was the first, uh, basically the first mobile kitchen and it allowed the cowboys to stay out with the cows for longer periods of time because they could bring their food. Um, so it was the kitchen, it was the, the kitchen wagon. Um, so uh, that's why it's called the Charlie cart because it's supposed to be the great, great grandchild of the check wagon and, and, and it's bringing food education out to the American prairie. <laughs> Well, you, the, your uh, program has been so successful and prolific. Now, at the last count that I've seen, there were 324 sites. Wow. Did you ever envision that it would be this successful? I don't know if I envisioned that it would be, to be perfectly honest, I don't know if I had a vision about that. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think that I was really, I knew that I wanted something like that because when I was teaching in my kids' classrooms, I was just astonished to see that um, how impactful it was. You know, that there are kids even here in Berkeley, California, that have never tasted lettuce or, um, you know, that they would take thirds, third heaping uh, helpings of salad. Um, kids who normally didn't eat vegetables. Um, but the other benefit uh, uh, that really struck me is um, that for kids who are kinesthetic learners, it's just a, a pathway to success. You know, you have kids, you have teachers who tell you that um, there's a cycle that happens when kids kind of have outbursts or they have a hard time sitting still, that then their peers start to treat them a certain way. And then the teacher kind of starts to see them a certain way and it affects how the teacher behaves towards the child. And, um, and when they can be really successful in a different environment or a different uh, way of learning, then their peers treat them differently and the teacher treats them differently and it creates a cycle of positivity. So, so it's not just about health and food, but it's about this really well-rounded education. And, um, and I was just stunned by um, how quickly those benefits could be seen, you know, how, how quickly they manifested. Um, so Sorry, remind me of your initial question because I know I veered way off track. No, no, you, you did fine, actually, because that was kind of following up. So did you envision that this would be so successful because you now have 324 sites and that's, to me, just amazing? Um, right. So I, so I didn't envision 
That's a, it's an interesting question, Dean, because it's, I, I, I didn't really think about it like that. I thought, um, I was surprised at how quickly people started calling. I was surprised at um, the variety of organizations that started calling, but I knew, like I said, I knew that I needed this. So I, I guess I wasn't surprised that other people also needed it, but um, maybe surprised at how much so that I had kind of struck on a moment um, and something that would could, you know, be easily popularized. Yeah. You're talking a little bit about the um, pedagogy of this. Now, what is one of the kind of the lesson plans that you have that you what you guys work on with the Charlie Cart with with this with the young people? So we have a, a curriculum actually with 54 lessons and recipes. And so, you know, the recipes go, we, we talk a lot about making butter because it's a uh, it's something that's in the curriculum. It's something that's incredibly simple, but everyone from children to adults absolutely love the butter lesson. It's very physically active because you're shaking the cream and, um, and, you know, you can put on some music and make it really fun and move around the room. Um, but you can add things into the butter. So you can talk about herbs and you can talk about flavor and you can talk about fat and you can talk about science and what happens with the what happens to the butter and how it morphs when you shake it and um, what role the salt has in that so you can really kind of you can you can imagine as a librarian right or if you're a teacher you can imagine how you could scale that lesson up or down depending on um, what grade level or what age you're working with to integrate just all kinds of lessons about health, about the environment, about science, um, about math, volume, like there's just so many things you can do with it. Um, so that's that's an example of the kind of lesson. And we, we imagine the kids working at um, different stations that they prepare the entire recipe. Now with COVID, it's a little different, obviously. So we're seeing a lot more demos and um, a little bit less of that communal hands-on kind of cooking. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Yeah, living in the Bay Area and, uh, you know, being in Berkeley and the areas around it so often, I'll see something like, I'll go to like Berkeley Bowl, then I'll drive, you know, just 10 minutes away and I'll be in a food desert. What led you to, and your, the others to kind of conceptualize the Charlie cart? What were, what were you thinking initially when you developed it? I think the initial impetus was um, a lot of people want to have this experiential learning opportunity and particularly around food. So how can we make it really easy for people? How can we make it easy for people who don't normally cook to understand how simple it can be and to provide some revelatory recipes that, that help them see the possibilities? And, you know, and for people who don't normally cook, I think um, just experiencing it a couple times really opens a lot of doors. Uh, I think that it can be really intimidating and um, and it doesn't have to be. So this is a way to say, let's let's just try some simple things. Let's just taste 
some different citruses. Let's, you know, let's just make some really simple recipes and get your hands on some fresh produce. So in terms of access, you know, there's just a couple things about that. I, um, firstly, there really is no access without education. Yes. So, right. So it's a two pronged problem. Actually, it's a multi, multi prong problem, but, yeah. but, um, in these conversations, one of the things in the conversations about access, education is often overlooked as a critical component. And yeah. so I really feel like I am out there evangelizing for education. I just don't believe that you can use fresh produce and, and provide you, yourself and your family with quality nutrition if you don't know what to do with the produce. If you, you know, so there's the learning where to get it and how to get it and how to pay for it and understanding budgeting and meal planning. There's all of that piece. There's the actual physical access, you know, how are folks getting this produce, but also that requires some demand too, right? So education yeah. also increases demand. And then there's the education piece. So once you have the produce, how are we gonna make sure that it doesn't just go bad in the refrigerator? Right. Where it gets used. Now that's a huge thing because I've been there myself. I mean, I was able to get a lot of free food uh, when I was living in Napa from people that had farms and, you know, just a free cycle. I was using that a lot to get free stuff to supplement our, our, our food income. And people were giving me stuff that if I didn't know how to cook it, I would have no way to preserve it or keep it around. And I had to kind of learn those things. And it's so important to be able to kind of like store things up, doing canning, learning to, you know, how to freeze stuff successfully so it doesn't turn to crap. It's all really important stuff. And I, I definitely, know, I've been there and I, I could tell you that education component is essential. Oh, wow, Dean, that's a really powerful example. Yeah, I mean, I think about things like, you know, if, if I don't have a lot of food in the refrigerator, I can dice up an onion and I can put an egg with it. And yeah. if, if it's a whole onion, which is really inexpensive, that can feed that that can feed several people right yes, that, like onions are a great way to stretch a meal they're super nutritious they're really delicious and they're really inexpensive and 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 it's so simple and it's just a simple little i don't know if we want to call it a hack but a simple little tip like that that can yeah. really change how you can take care of yourself right oh yeah now the program has been on for seven years um what are some of the um impacts that you've seen from the program? What, what have you seen now seven years on? That is a great question. Um, well, first of all, the growth has been really um, surprising, like you said. Um, the, the fact that we're seeing food education in so many different kinds of organizations. I, I think that, um, you know, ultimately we wanna see food education everywhere that children gather to learn, right? Yes, absolutely. So, right, so we want it to be mainstream. So um, I do think that having this turnkey program that's excessively priced and doesn't have annual membership fees, you know, it's just a one-time fee. It's like this transaction that kind of liberates an organization to go forward with something new and try it and and continue doing it without a ton of investment. So I think the biggest impact we're having is enabling 
different types of organizations to see food education as part of their work and to make food education part of their work. So we've got, you know, VAs and we have children's museums and farmers markets, um, which is maybe kind of an obvious one, but libraries, libraries really stepping up right now into food education and food access. It's just amazing to see how they're going. Um, I'd say that's the biggest growing sector of our for Charlie Carter's our libraries and there's so much fun to work with Dean. <laughs> oh yeah I know librarians love this kind of thing this is really in their wheelhouse. I want to talk with you about your book New Favorites for New Cooks 50 Delicious Recipes for Kids to Make and it's a cook that I really love for many reasons number one it's I, it's given me a lot of really good ideas for cooking for my kids who when you have a lot of kids you're a parent you know kids can be picky they can like different things it, it can be not so fun to sometimes cook for kids but this book brings along some really just genius ideas that I had not thought of. And I was like, kind of like, wow, that's a really good idea. What would, what, what inspired you to write this cookbook? Thank you. I'm glad that you like it. Um, so there was a couple different things that inspired me to write it. I, um, when I was writing the curriculum, the Charlie Clark curriculum, uh, I, I'm always intrigued by, um, the ways that you can learn different things through cooking. It just seems so effortless and fun. It makes it fun. Um, And I know that those recipes translated really well for kids, the Charlie Cart recipes. And I thought, oh, I can just turn this into a cookbook. That'll be easy. Uh, It's it's never that easy. So that was part of it, Um, (laughs) right? The other thing is that, I had a lot of fun with my kids when they were growing up around food. And um, I, you know, I have one kid who is definitely a kinesthetic learner. And so I was always challenging him in the kitchen. And it was also a way for us to get more time together. And we really bonded over food. We would do, you know, funny games like Spice Quest, where they would taste peppers and things like that. Or, um, uh once I had my son um I brought home a whole bunch of squid and I said turn on YouTube and figure out how to clean it and then he he had so much fun with that and he felt really empowered he figured it all out by himself and um and it's kind of a slimy and it's got this sort of gross out vibe that kids actually love even though they pretend that not to Um, So I just found it like a really engaging cooking with my kids, a really engaging tool. And I wanted to pass that along. Um, So that was the, that was the inspiration. I really liked my first cookbook as a kid was uh, my mom got me a copy of, because they just didn't have the cookbooks they like to do now. And I think there was like one book out when I was young and it was the French cookbook for kids. And it had things in it like Escarole and Endive and, you know, soul, you know, just different things that weren't as easy to get. So, I, I mean, it was nice, but it was kind of ambitious. I like that your book is accessible and it's like, I think it's good for beginner cooks, like you say in the title. Um, what was the kind of uh, testing and the writing part like when you're kind of devising the recipes? Was that a challenge for you to kind of come up with the recipes for it? Or had you already kind of tried some of these things out with your kids? Well, a lot of them were things that we would just eat on regular rotation at our house so um but 
something that you do freestyle is actually kind of challenging to turn into a recipe. You know, you have to be super disciplined. So I was so lucky that I had several people from, you know, from the days when I was at Chez Panisse who helped me um, either develop a couple of recipes or um, test all the recipes. I had um, Charlene Reese and Amaya Marino tested all the recipes for me. Amaya developed a couple of recipes. Um, and that was, and uh, another friend, Su Chin Chin, who um, tested recipes too. So there was a lot of, there were kind of a lot of quote unquote cooks in the kitchen. Um, you know, you kind of have to test things a lot of times too, because some people have a salty palate, some people have a sweet palate. And so for me, I wanted to try to find something in the middle. Um, so I would have these testers and they, I would get these feedback, this, their feedback, and then I would have a different tester do it and I would get different feedback and then I would try to find the middle ground. Now the, the production quality and the photo, the photography is just fantastic for this. Now this is a 10 speed press book, I understand, who always really does great cookbooks anyway. Were you concerned though, as a one, as a first time writer of cookbooks, were you concerned about the look of it and the production quality? Uh, well, I worked with this amazing editor, Jenny Wapner, who is um, at a different publishing house now, but um, she has done so many cookbooks. She's just a pro and she's also really um, just a lovely person and so easy to work with. So um, that made it, you know, I trusted her and that made it easier. It, But that said, it's, it's a pretty kind of intimidating process, you yes. know, um, right? The publishing company has they sort of own everything and they own you and yeah absolutely <laughs> right and they're like this is what we know works it doesn't really matter what you think at a certain point you know and um and I think sometimes they're right and other times you really want to push for what is important to you I was really lucky so I had worked with Samin Nostrat um at Chez Panisse and so wow. I um, so I called her and said, this is really hard. <laughs> she said, let me just tell you, give you one piece of advice. Just don't, she said, you're going to have to compromise. Just don't do anything you're embarrassed by. I, like I thought that. that was, you know, like, it's a little bit like, I don't know if you can uh, relate to this, but planning a wedding is a little bit like that, right? You have to capitulate at a certain point to yeah. parents and family or whomever. And, and you just got to keep like one or two or three things, your top line things that you're not willing to compromise on. So um, I do want to say another word about the testing though, because it always uh, makes me laugh that my kids had to eat those recipes so many times. <laughs> I hear that a lot from people actually. <laughs> the family becomes the guinea pigs. <laughs> so many times, like there were times when I would just make something like seven, 10, 12 times in a row and not, you know, not over the course of a few weeks or months, but like over the course of three days and <laughs> they had to eat it all and they were very gracious about it and they still eat those foods today. So that's I don't think, I think that's a good testament to the book. You know, I think that, you know, it shows how good the recipes are. <laughs> Now, what's next for you? Well, we really hope that um, Charlie Card is going to um, do big things this year. So um, we're gonna we're growing. We're gonna add new staff. Um, we are, and we're actually hiring. So you can put that out there. We're, nice. Um, we're we're going to launch uh, 
a major evaluation initiative to see the impact of our work. Um, we're going to increase our programming so we have more opportunities to bring our network together. Um, and I really hope um, we are going to um, work more regionally because we have these clusters of programs and that offers a major opportunity for just facilitating partnerships and, and starting evaluation and just working more deeply in communities or helping them to work more deeply together. Um, but, uh, but I still do want to get all 50 states and right now we have 46 states. So, um, that's pretty impressive. I mean, I don't know, seven years and that much, that's pretty good. Well, where we just want to know Utah, New Hampshire, um, Nebraska and Washington state, where are y'all? We want you <laughs> come forth. <laughs> well, if you're in those states and you're listening, talk to your local uh, schools and educators about this. And I'll put the contact information in the bio for you as well. Thanks for that plug, Dean. <laughs> Carolyn, I want to thank you uh, for being on the program. Oh, and a shout out for people in the Bay Area here. Charlie Cart uh, recently is in working with libraries in Alameda County and Contra Costa County. So check those things out. Carolyn, thank you for being on the program. I hope we get to have you on here again and talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Carolyn Fetterman of the Charlie Carr Project. You can purchase her book, New Favorites for New Cooks, 50 Delicious Recipes for Kids to Make, on all major book vendors, or you can actually buy it at all better bookstores like Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Next week on the program, we're going to be having Dennis Litley, who is the um, author of the Ask Dennis blog. It's uh, been around for quite a while and is very famous. You've probably seen it yourself. He was a great guest, and I enjoy having you get to hear that conversation. If you want to share this podcast with others, we always enjoy and encourage people to share this on social media. If you want to leave um, a tip for me, there is a link in the bio that you can go to to share uh, information about the podcast and also leave a tip or feedback. Um, if you want to do also check out Asian Man Records, asianmanrecords.com. They have provided us with the intro and outro to the podcast, um, Talk About Love by Kitty Cat Fan Club. I encourage you to check out their website and check out the bands on there, uh, buy some CDs, uh, buy some records. They have lots of good vinyl. Uh, also, you can get hoodies and really cool stickers too. I hope you all have a great week and keep cooking. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.